All right, our scripture can be found up on the screen or in the bulletin as we continue through the book of John. Uh, it's been a while. We, we stopped for the Advent season, but we resume. And uh, where we pick up is uh, Christ has been crucified. He has been buried. Uh, and now we're looking at uh, the resurrection. This is John 19, 38 through 2010. Uh, after these things, after Jesus was crucified, Joseph of, of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The word of the Lord. My wife and I attended a funeral, a celebration service yesterday for a dear friend of ours, Laura Edwards. Um, and it was a, a wonderful um, celebration of her life. Um, it's neat to uh, go and, and to hear from people, particularly someone who has lived a, a beautiful life in which she did, uh, and to hear from friends and family about her and the impact they had on her. Uh, Laura got cancer uh, several years ago and, and bravely fought it, um, but in the end um, passed away. And, uh, you know, it's always sort of stark when you go to a funeral and there's a, there's a casket there, right? And you look at the casket and you know that the body is in there. And it's a, a grim reminder to us that life on this earth is not uh, forever. Uh, Laura was my age. And uh, as I look at my body and see it's aging, uh, I too am reminded that I am mortal, that life is not forever, that death is most certainly a part of life. And so we have to ask the question, what are we to do with death? The world is not exactly sure what to do with death, right? We've kind of put it behind three hospital doors. We try to maybe pretend that it's not there, that it doesn't exist. Or maybe we acknowledge death and despair, for we know that it is coming and coming for all. But I want to suggest that we can face death not by 
pretending it's not there, not by acknowledging and despairing, but rather we can face it with hope. And the way, the reason that we can face it with hope is because of the resurrection. That one has gone into the tomb and come out of the tomb. That Jesus Christ has conquered death and we can conquer death through him as well. What this passage shows us is that we must seek a living Christ, not worship a dead one, for he is surely alive. Well, how do we do that? Well, I think we need to do three things. Number one, we need to adjust our expectations. Adjust our expectations of who we think this Jesus Christ is. Number two, we need to run to the tomb like the disciples did. And then finally, number three, we need to go home. I'll explain what that means later. Let's look at point number one, to adjust our expectations. See that Christ has died. They have, uh, 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 they have uh, stuck the spear in his side. They have certified that he is dead. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, has gone to Pilate and asked to take the body. We know some things about Joseph of Arimathea. He's mentioned only in this, only in the death account, but in all four Gospels. Uh, we know that he was wealthy. He was a man of considerable means. We know he was part of the governing body, the Sanhedrin, and that he had not voted with everyone else to condemn Jesus to death. We also know that he was a secret follower of Jesus Christ, secret follower for fear of the Jews. But for whatever reason, he makes this bold request of Pilate and so associates himself with Jesus at this particular time. Additionally, we see Nicodemus, and if we remembered Nicodemus in John 3, who had come to Jesus by night, acknowledging that Jesus was a teacher sent by God and had that interaction with Jesus where Jesus shared that no one could see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. We know Nicodemus, too, most likely was a member of the Sanhedrin, was known as the teacher of Israel, and we see Nicodemus also involved with the burial of Jesus. He comes bringing 75 pounds of a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Now, this was not to embalm Jesus, kind of like the Egyptians did, but rather it was to cover him uh, so as to mask the stench of decomposition. And this 75 pounds is an insanely expensive amount, quantity, for one person. It, it would be suitable for a hundred people. So Nicodemus obviously reveres Jesus Christ, and uh, the, the equivalent would be tens of thousands of dollars uh, that Nicodemus is spending on Jesus' funeral. Now, we see in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, in, in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. Based on the Greek, this is a, a large garden, and we see that there is this tomb uh, uh, fulfilling the prophecy, most likely, of Joseph of Arimathea, that uh, uh, in Isaiah 53, 9, which was read earlier, that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And so Jesus is laid in this tomb, which is befitting for the wealthy and the powerful. And as I read this, 
and saw the actions of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, I had to ask myself the question, why did they wait until death to show this kind of devotion? Right? Nicodemus came at night. Joseph was a secret follower of Jesus. Why are they identifying so overtly with him in death? Maybe they recognized the greatness of his life and the injustice of it all, that an innocent man was put to death and they wanted to revere him. Maybe they wanted to do something for Jesus, yet at the same time, they didn't want Jesus to do something to them. And what do I mean by that? I mean that to them, a living Jesus was just too dangerous, right? He would upset their status quo. He had said to Nicodemus that you must be born again, Nicodemus. In other words, you must change your outlook and belief and theology. You must follow me. And for Joseph of Arimathea to follow Jesus, the living Jesus, would most certainly be to forfeit his position in the Sanhedrin. It would most definitely affect his business interests, his bottom line. So you see, to them in death, Jesus was much safer than in life. They would rather revere a dead prophet than follow a living Messiah. And so there's a sense of almost reinventing Jesus into something that he is not. Now, the world does this, by the way. You know, if you've ever, you know, Time Magazine, they have their most influential person of the year. Well, they've done the most influential person ever. And, of course, who's at the top of the list? His name is Jesus Christ, right? And they're acknowledging Christ's contribution to ethics and his impact on society. But Jesus is very, very safe, tucked away in history. See, it seems that just about everyone is fine with him being wrapped in 75 pounds of spices in a tomb fit for a king. But the problem, of course, is that Jesus doesn't stay dead. His call is the same to Joseph and Nicodemus as it is to us. Not simply to agree with his principles or to follow his examples or to submit to his teachings, or even to revere his accomplishments. It's to follow him. To lose your life and your autonomy and your self-will and surrender to his will and his living person. See, Jesus is not subject to death because Jesus is life. As 1 John 1, 2 said, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Eternal life is not a concept, it's a person. And so the scriptures tell us that he who has the Son has life. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. To have Jesus as our life, we must embrace him 
as the living Christ. See, I think sometimes we might think that if he is in the tomb, we can have our life and have him. In other words, I can love him and control him. But the answer is no, you can't. The only way you can have Jesus is as the living Christ, for the other Christ doesn't exist. I have before me, I, I raided my wife's uh, uh, closet and grabbed her jewelry box. Okay? She, does, she, you know, she doesn't know this. I actually gave this to her uh, when we got married. It was a foreshadowing of the uh, rubies and diamonds and emeralds that I would shower her with. Uh, as we continued on, that she would need to carry them. And, uh, you know, this jewelry box, uh, some of you, if you're women, you may have it, uh, something like this, uh, but all sorts of uh, things. You know, we put our most precious things in a box, right? Or a safe, because we want to protect them. We want to keep them safe. Now, every now and then, we bring them out whenever we want them or we need them, or maybe just to make sure that we still have them, and then they go back in the box, right? See, we can look at the tomb like a box. It's a place to keep him safe. So my question for you and for me today is this, where do you keep Jesus? Maybe you keep him in the tomb, and you revere him. And visit him from time to time and take him out when you need him, when you are in trouble, and then back he goes. Maybe your attitude and spirit is, I am in charge of my life. And I refuse to recognize that he is not in the box. But you see, if we have that attitude about Jesus Christ, guess what? We're the ones who are in the box. We live small lives because we are the greatest thing in our life. We have no power to overcome things that are greater than us because Jesus Christ is a talisman, not a living Savior. If we worship a dead Jesus, the truth of the matter is that's no Jesus at all. So when you try to put Jesus in a box, you are the one that ends up in the box. And so we must adjust our expectations, adjust our understanding of who Christ is. I appreciate Paul's words, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Jesus is raised. He is the author of life, and therefore he is worthy of our life and our worship. And so we must recognize that Jesus Christ is not safe, but he's good. And we must come before him, not as a concept or a theory, but a person and kneel before the risen Christ to acknowledge his greatness and to recognize our smallness and to bring him 
give him invitation into our life that he might make our heart his home. To say, I am yours. Because we must seek the living Christ, not worship a dead one. This brings me to my second point, that we must adjust our expectations, but we must also run to the tomb. We see now on the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene was going to the tomb while it was dark, and she discovered that the stone was rolled away. And so she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who we believe is John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Isn't that interesting? Her, her, the way she interprets it is the body of Jesus has been stolen. So what does Peter and John do? They go out, and we see that both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tombs first. Now, what is the significance of this, of John outrunning Peter? The answer is there is no significance of that whatsoever. Okay, sometimes it just is quoting what happened. But why were they running? They were running because they were upset, right? Why has Jesus been treated so unfairly? Okay, he's, he's been crucified. He's in the tomb. Why can't people leave him alone and allow him to rest and get the peace that he deserves? But you see, Jesus never rests. And his peace is never disturbed. As Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And so they get to the tomb, and we see, stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. But Peter, of course, brushes right by him, goes by and sees the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which is actually separate from the other linen cloths, and it's folded up neatly on the on the uh, bench where Jesus lay. Then the other disciple, John, goes into the tomb, and he saw, and he believed. And then it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Well, how can he believe? His faith uh, began to work. Now, he didn't understand everything, right? He didn't, it says he didn't understand the scripture, and in that sense, he's talking about the Old Testament. He doesn't understand, just like the people on the road to Emmaus, right? All these things, and they didn't understand, and Jesus had to explain to them, using the scriptures, how it was obvious and necessary for Christ to rise. But in John's heart, there was hope that Jesus might be alive. Now, how did John come to that conclusion? The answer is that he saw the burial cloths, right? The clothes. Now, you need to understand that burying a body, according to Jewish custom, there are very specific procedures that need to be followed, down to how the nails are cut and how the hair is combed. See, these long linen strips, about a foot long, would be prepared. And they would lay him like this, and they would begin to wrap him tightly. And over every fold, then they would place this, uh, these aloes and this myrrh. And the myrrh helped 
to make it to become a gummy substance and around it would go and then another layer and around, think paper mache. And they would wrap him all the way up to here and then they would put his arms and then they would wrap all the way around again. And then they would do the head and they would actually wrap it around so his, his chin would not fall. It was a very specific procedure. And yet when we see, uh, when they see the grave clothes, the strips are still there, right? Now, no thief would have unwrapped tens of thousands of dollars of linen and aloes and myrrh. And there's no indication it was all over the place. It was just there. And then, of course, the face cloth is actually folded up and put neatly on the bench. It's almost like somebody slept over and fixed the bed before they left. See, the best explanation of what they saw was simply this, that Jesus Christ had risen through the grave clothes that were in their approximate shape, which is in line with what we know about Jesus' resurrected body, right? Jesus resurrected with a real body. He went to his disciples and he said, put your hands here at my side, touch Touch me, feel me, I'm not a ghost. In fact, do you have anything to eat? And yet at the same time, Jesus had supernatural abilities. In John 20, when the, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled in the upper room for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He walked through the wall, through the door. John saw these cloths and he believed. So why were these cloths left. They were left for the same reason that the stone was rolled away. See, the stone didn't really need to be rolled away for Jesus to come out, did he? Did it, right? He could have walked through the stone like he walked through the wall. I'm not saying he did that, but I'm not saying he didn't. What I am saying is that the primary reason the cloths were there and the stone was moved away, was not to let him out, but to let us in. Matthew 28, 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. These things were done so that we would come in and see. You see, my friends, the resurrection is firmly grounded in history. I mean, think about it. How did Christianity become the largest religion in the world? The leader was killed, publicly humiliated, and shamed, and put in a tomb. That's not the way that you start a movement. It should have died right there. The reason that it started was because the tomb was empty and the people saw. And the reason the apostles went from cowards to boldly proclaiming Christ in the very place where he was crucified 50 days later was that they had seen the risen Christ who appeared to them and to over 500 people over a period of time before he ascended. See, my friends, without the resurrection, Jesus' death becomes the heroic death of a noble martyr, the pathetic death of a madman, or the execution of a fraud. 
But the angel invites us all, come and see, Jesus is alive. You may not know the name Simon Greenleaf, unless you're an attorney you might know, but Simon Greenleaf was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. He is also the author of the classic three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which to many is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature on legal procedure. Greenleaf literally wrote the rules of evidence for the U.S. legal system. And he examined the resurrection based on rules of evidence in a court of law. And his conclusion, the resurrection of Christ was one of the best supported events in history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in courts of justice. Greenleaf said, let the gospel's testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the site of the advert on the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. So run to the tomb. See for yourself. Examine the evidence. We do not have a faith that is supported by myth or words, but by actions and history. And as Jesus conquered death itself and the grave, we must ask, is there any problem that is too big for Jesus? He overcame the grave. Surely he can overcome our problems and our issues. And so we must take our problems along with ourselves to the tomb. What is overwhelming you today? Is it your weaknesses and your failings? Is it your life situation? Is it circumstances beyond your control? Take them to the tomb. Take your mortality to the tomb. For at the tomb you will see that there is hope for eternal life. Is your hope only for this life? And you live for today and try to ignore the future? The reality is the world has no answer for the grave. But if you have Christ, death is not the end. For he is Lord over death. And so put your trust in Jesus Christ as you run to the tomb. This brings me to my final point. Then go home. Notice verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. I mean, didn't they try to figure this out, right? The women get a lot more credit than the guys on this. They stuck around. But the guys, they didn't know what to do. Now, John, we saw, he believed, but did he start preaching? Did he start telling the other disciples? I think he's alive. Doesn't seem that. See, the empty tomb though extremely powerful, is not enough. He needed more. And this is my favorite part of the story, that Jesus followed them, right? Verse 19, which is not in this passage, 
But on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, Jesus was seeking them. He didn't say to them, well, you guys didn't get it at the tomb, so you lost your chance, right? This is actually what it's all about. God came near. He became a human. He died and rose again. And the first thing he did was to go and find them. Because he was excited to be with them and to show them the new reality and the new hope they have in Jesus Christ. That the curtain has been torn in two. And they could now have a living relationship with Christ and the Father. And sometimes I think, if only I had been alive back then and seen the tomb, I would have believed. But the answer is, no, I wouldn't. I would have been just like them. But you see, the beauty is that Christ would come and find me. And what he did with those disciples, he does with us today. Through the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out into this world, he comes to meet us where we are, in our home, in our ordinary life. Because Christ is alive, and what he desires is a living relationship with us, no matter who you are or where you are. Do you want to know Jesus Christ? Then go to the tomb, and then go home. You don't have to find him. He'll find you. You simply have to open your heart and seek his presence. To say, come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I want to know you, the living God. For God wants to walk through this life with you and give you eternal life for the life beyond. I finish going back to the funeral of Laura Edwards, where there was a grim reminder of death, but there was something else there as well, a great assurance of hope, because Laura Edwards loved Jesus, and she put her trust and hope in him as her risen Savior. See, before Laura Edwards went into that casket, Jesus went into it for three days and came out again and promises to do the same thing for all those who trust in him. Laura has a faith in Christ that will overcome the grave, and you can have that too. For we must seek the living Christ, not worship a dead one. For the only Christ that exists is the one who's risen from the grave. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the living Savior who is here with us today. And God, we welcome you into our hearts. Reside and take up your throne that we might know you and be found in you, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which is through faith. Pray that every person within earshot 
would give their heart to you and open the door of their life to you.